Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. My guest today is Tim Rothgarden. He is a professor of computer science at Columbia University. His research interests include the many connections between computer science and economics, as well as the design, analysis, applications, and limitations of algorithms. We'll also talk about his most recent research in the cryptocurrency space, EIP-1559, and the future of Ethereum. And now I'm going to read out a very long list of awards that Professor Rothgarden uh, has won because he is a very renowned uh, scholar in his field, as many of our listeners might not know. So Professor Rothgarden has been awarded the ACM Grace Murray Hopper Award, the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the Kalai Prize in Computer Science and Game Theory, the Social Choice and Welfare Prize, the Mathematical Programming Society's Tucker Prize, and the Gouda Prize in Theoretical Computer Science. He was an invited speaker at the 2006 International Congress of Mathematicians, the Shapley Lecturer at the 2008 World Congress of Game Theory Society, and a Guggenheim Fellow in 2017. He has written or edited 10 books and monographs and is regarded by many, uh, as many of my friends, my fellow college students would say, he is the GOAT, the greatest of all time in algorithm game theory teaching. Uh, we reached out to him very much because we interviewed professors Matt Weinberg and Alex Tabrick earlier a few weeks ago, a few months ago, about issues related to cryptocurrency. And we asked them who we should talk to uh, next and, and who uh, in the field is actually doing great research and providing signal and not noises. And everybody was talking about Professor Rothgarden. So it's truly a great honor to finally have him on the show. So Professor Rothgarden, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Tiger. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for the kind introduction. So I'm co-hosting this show with my friend, Seyang Raghavan, who uh, also just graduated Princeton uh, in my year. We were both seniors. He was a senior in the math department. He has done research in the theoretical computer science and machine learning. And Seyang is very humble, but I do want to say this, that he also was a gold medalist of the International Mathematical Olympiad. So someone uh, with significant uh, uh, intellectual capability and uh, magnitudes higher than me. So Seyang, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for the kind introduction, Tiger. Very excited to be here. So Professor Rothgarden, we should, maybe we should start with your last name even because that, that really fascinated me, uh, Rothgarden, because it's literally spelled Rothgarden. So maybe we can start with the origin of your name and your history, your research, uh, and what got you into computer science. Sure, sure. The, the name is Dutch. Um, and actually, I, I dug up what the Dutch version was, and I'm not going to quite remember it. Um, maybe, maybe I'll send that to you later. Um, but basically kind of, uh, you know, I've heard different stories, be either four or six, you know, brothers who were pretty down and out uh, in the Netherlands came over to the States and I don't know when, you know, 1800s or something. Um, and so that's, that's where that, that part of my lineage comes from, um, which maybe explains partly like my height around six, four, six, five. So <laughs> maybe I owe that to the Dutch side. I'm not sure. Um, and then, yeah, so, I, uh, so I'm a professor at Columbia um, and I'm a computer scientist in the computer science department here. One of my core areas of expertise is algorithms. So, you know, when I teach sort of uh, core undergrad um, classes, it's usually, usually classes in algorithms. I also have a couple of online classes in algorithms. Um, but then, you know, especially on the research side, you know, for most of my career, my calling card has kind of been the the connections between computer science and economics, really ideas flowing in both directions. So, you know, how can you use tools from economics and game theory to make progress on important computer science applications, but then also kind of, you know, looking for opportunities to 
to put the, you know, uh, put the computer science lens on the game theory and economics and ask, you know, what tools do we have that can um, give new insights into, into basic economic applications? Great. So uh, Tiger mentioned um, your incredible set of prizes. So I thought we could start with, um, in particular, the Gödel Prize, which you won in 2012 for your work on selfish routing, which has been celebrated as helping lay down the foundations of algorithmic game theory. Um, so maybe to walk our listeners through this, could you first start by giving us an overview of the concept of price and anarchy? Sure. Um, and then just maybe some of the context. Right. So I was, I was lucky to sort of get in on the ground floor of the whole sort of algorithmic game theory movement. It really started, so I started my PhD at Cornell in 1998. I didn't go there to do algorithmic game theory because algorithmic game theory did not exist at that point. Um, I really went to do kind of algorithms, combinatorial optimization, um, and Cornell had, had a lot of strength in that, you know, including my PhD advisor, Ava Tardosh. Um, and then kind of, you know, one of, the, one of the trends that you started seeing in computer science, really in my first year of grad school, um, was because, you know, so, so this would be 1998, 1999, you know, and that was kind of the era, you know, both of you are sort of too young to have seen this, but right, I mean, that, that was when the internet was in the process of becoming widely adopted. So it was definitely not nowhere near as ubiquitous part of our existence as it is today. Um, but, you know, to, 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 to everybody, and especially to computer science academics, it was obvious that computer science as a field would have to respond, would have to change because of all of the new challenges posed by sort of the rise of the internet, so much computing um, moving to it. So early in my grad school, it was clear that was in the air, I would say. Um, and in 1999, there were two really crucial papers, which are the, um, I believe the other two papers on the same Gödel Prize citation. Uh, so there was a paper by Nissan and Ronin, uh, which was really shining the computer science, uh, you know, sort of looking at mechanism design from a computer science angle, in particular with an emphasis on computational efficiency. Um, and then there was a paper by Kutsupius and Papadimitriou, uh, which introduced the concept of the price of anarchy. So if you study, you know, really in sort of the very first lecture or on the very first page of any game theory book, you know, what you learn is that, you know, typically when individuals do what's in their own interest without regard to the collective, the results can be very bad for the collective. And so one famous example would be the prisoner's dilemma. Um, I won't sort of tell the full story, but basically, you know, both would be better off if they cooperated, but they each have a unilateral incentive to not cooperate. Another example would be the tragedy of the commons, where it's better for everybody if a resource doesn't get used too highly, but everyone has an individual incentive to sort of overconsume, right? So you can think about like pollution, right? Everybody's better off if we don't pollute that much, but any given sort of entity, you know, gets, you know, because there's an externality, because basically, you know, the individual makes a decision, there, there are sort of modest consequences for itself, but there are also mod modest consequences for tons of other people. So on balance, it's bad for society, but an ind individual thinking only of themselves and not thinking of the externality is going to, you know, do the wrong thing from a, from a societal perspective. So this is something just, you know, you, just, you study any economics or game theory at all, and you know this is true. You know that sort of, you know, Nash equilibria can fail to be Pareto optimal would be some of the jargon for it you learn in like a, in like a game theory class. And, um, you know, so then usually the next step where you would go uh, in econ or game theory would, would you basically say, how can we change the game or change people's incentives or change the payoffs so that we get an outcome that we're happier with? Right. So, for example, if you're talking about pollution, you know, maybe you have some kind of tax. Right. So maybe you force people to sort of internalize the externality, the damage they're causing to others by making them pay for it themselves. And then you can, you know. 
there are ways to align um, kind of what individual how individuals behave with what you'd like to see for the collective. So that was sort of the historical response you'd see in economics and game theory about like what do you do if you know the incentives are bad and people are incentivized to behave in a way that's not good for everybody. And so the price of anarchy paper that the Kutsupis and Power Dimitri wrote in 1999 that really took a completely different tack at addressing the question. So they basically asked the question, you know, all right, so we know that, you know, lots and lots of different games, you know, Nash equilibria or selfish behavior will lead to suboptimal outcomes, but like, how bad is it really? Like, you know, cause it's a big difference, whether it's like, okay, it's like almost as good. It's just like a little bit different. It's worse, but not much worse versus it's a total disaster, right? Those are like sort of two very different situations. Like the first one maybe doesn't call out for regulation at all, right? If selfish behavior leads to something that's, you know, in some sense, almost as good as what you'd achieve with full coordination, maybe you can live with it. Right? Whereas obviously if it's gonna to lead to kind of, you know, if the problem is gonna to lead to the you know, decay of society or something, you might wanna be more aggressive about it. Um, so that's where the price of anarchy came from. Uh, so my second year of grad school, this was, I guess, you know, probably October, 99. Uh, Ava and I were at Berkeley. We were, we were visiting for a year. She, she was on sabbatical there uh, with her husband, David Schmoyes. Um, and we went to sort of the theory lunch that they have every week at Berkeley. Um, and, you know, I was, a, I was a starving grad student. I was not going to not go to a talk that had free food with it, uh, which this one certainly did. Um, and then it just so happened that, you know, this, this theory lunch that I showed up to on that fateful day, uh, Leonard Shulman, who these days is a professor at Caltech, um, he explained on the whiteboard something, he, he read it in sort of, you know, American Scientist or a popular science magazine like that. He just, he just read it like earlier that day. And it was like, here's this cool thing I saw called Brace's Paradox. And so Brace's paradox is this, um, you know, which, which was sort of first written about by Brace, Dietrich Brace back in 1968. And so he observed that, you know, if you look at a network, right, and, you know, the network can mean many things, but think of it just like cars on the road, just like a simple traffic network about like we're all familiar with. It can actually be the case that you can build a new route, right, so you can seemingly increase the capacity of the network. Um, but even with the amount of traffic staying exactly the same, people will actually choose different routes and the result will be worse for everybody in the sense that everybody will, basically everyone will experience more congestion and everyone will have higher delays going from wherever they're, from their origin to their destination, right? So somehow, you know, you give people more options and it exacerbates kind of the suboptimality kind of selfish decisions. So that was Brace's paradox. And, and, and Leonard had this is like very nice four vertex, five edge example, you sort of put on the board, you know, where this is sort of kind of, um, you know, basically you have two parallel routes and he showed that if you sort of put in a teleportation device to go straight from one to the other, everybody wants to use the teleportation device, but then everybody's doing the same thing. So they're all congesting each other. So they all take like much longer than they did before when they were naturally separating into sort of two groups and having only half the congestion. So it's this super clean example. And so Leonard asked an open question, which um, I did solve, but that was in my third paper. It took me a while. He asked about whether or not there's a, an efficient algorithm for detecting whether a network suffers from this paradox or not. Um, but Christos Papadimitriou, I mean, he was, a, he's a, he was a professor at UC Berkeley at that time. He was in the audience. He'd just written that paper with Kutsupius. And so he just said, he's like, you know, you could also ask, you know, how much worse could the equilibria be than an optimal solution? Optimal solution, meaning imagine an altruistic dictator just sort of decided the routes that everybody would pick going from their origin to the destination to minimize their average commute time, their average sort of travel time. So, so Christo said, you could ask how much worse is the equilibrium compared to that? And, um, and that really caught, I mean, I thought it was cool too. I mean, I, one of the things I really loved as a student was network flow. 
um, you know, it's like max flow, min cut, these kinds of things you learn in an algorithms class. I loved that stuff. Uh, max flow, min cut theorem is probably one of the reasons why I became a theoretical computer scientist, to be, to be honest, that and, the, that and the halting problem maybe. Um, so I was, I was very taken with what Leonard was talking about, but then Ava, my advisor, she was very taken with it. Um, and I was at the beginning of my second year, I, I, did, I knew very little, but like one really smart observation I had, which is, you know, if you wanna maximize the engagement of your PhD advisor, work on the problem about which they are the most excited. And I, I had sort of figured that out at that point in my graduate education. I was like, Ava's excited about this. I'm gonna drop everything and I'm gonna collaborate with her and we're gonna try to crack this thing. Um, and we did actually. So that, uh, which wound up being the how bad is selfish routing paper. Uh, so we that's sort of two theorems in that paper. One we proved kind of late 99, one we proved early 2000. It was published in late 2000. Um, and so the, 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 the first theorem that we showed was that in the types of networks that Leonard was talking about, where congestion, or sorry, delay uh, increases as an affine, you know, say linear function um, of the road congestion, uh, we show that actually, you know, if you just if you let drivers pick whatever routes they want and settle into an equilibrium, the average delay is never going to be more than 33% than it would have been had an altruistic dictator just picked optimal routes for everybody. An extremely simple example is there's both the brace paradox example that Leonard um, showed. There's an even simpler one with just two parallel routes known as Pigou's example. Those already show that the 33, you might get stuck with 33%. Like that was the easy part. Like it could be as bad as 33%. But Ava and I showed that it can't be any worse than that. No matter how big and crazy your network is, no matter how many different origins and destinations crisscrossing each other, sort of doesn't matter. 33% is sort of the magic number of, of how much you might conceivably lose due to selfish routing. And I think that struck everybody, you know, computer scientists, but really even more so, I think, in my experience, it struck economists as uh, a shockingly low number, right? Because again, you just, you, I mean, you, 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 you train in economics, you just drilled into it that, you know, you have ex, un, uninternalized externalities lead to loss of efficiency, lead to Pareto suboptimality. That's just, you know, that's part of, you know, it's just, it's, it's built into you. And then to have this example where, you know, it doesn't falsify any of those points, right? I mean, it is still suboptimal where it's just like not that big a difference. I, I, to, in my experience, that really, really was a very pleasant surprise to a lot of economists. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know, some of the work I've done has been easier or harder to get acceptance from the economics research community. That one was very easy. And I think one of the reasons why it was very easy is because it had a, um, it had a punchline that was both surprising and optimistic, uh, which I think really, uh, you know, really struck people. So, Professor Rothgarten, just to kind of recap this uh, brilliant story that you told, uh, and also told in such a smooth way, you're a very good storyteller, but I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So, people are selfish, and sometimes we're understood traditionally that, that, that if you're selfish, you impose a bad externality on the system, overall societal welfare decreases. But there are cases where even if you increase the pie, the, the number of rows or the number of resources available, and it doesn't actually solve the problem. It could actually make the situation worse when people are, are selfish. And on the contrary, uh, counter to a lot of our imagination, in certain cases, you could even close down the road and reduce the pie. And, and uh, in some sense, take advantage of the fact that people are selfish and that would actually lead to a better better uh, outcome, collective well-being. So, so that, that seems to be the, the interesting dilemma and problem, counterintuitive problem that, that computer scientists and economists were working on. To, to yeah, that, that's a great way of, of um, distilling Brace's paradox in, into a nutshell. 
And I would say, it's funny, I'd say people who've seriously studied game theory in some sense find it very unsurprising. They still usually like the example, but they find it unsurprising because really more generally, what it's showing is that you, sometimes you can take away options from people and actually wind up with a better overall result. Because basically you take away people's temptations to do the things that seem good for themselves but are bad for everybody else. And so, you know, game theory, you do see a lot of examples of that form. Those people not trained in game theory, I think, find it, you know, delightful. I mean, it's a great thing to just show someone on like a cocktail napkin, you know, at a, at a party or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an enduringly cool example. I never get tired of racist paradox. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, so in terms of, so then kind of to fast forward to some of your later work on Price of Anarchy, um, you were kind of interested in thinking about kind of more general notions of equilibrium than the Nash equilibrium, right? So um, could you walk us a bit through kind of why that's a consideration that is worth making and then kind of what your findings were on that front as well? Sure, um, great question. So, you know, really ever since, you know, Nash, ever, ever since really the definition of the Nash equilibrium, um, it's been an, an essentially, you know, maybe non-constructive is not quite the right word, but, um, you know, certainly uh, it, it's been, it's, it, you know, Nash phrased his theorem as an existential result and he used mathematical techniques. Oh, right, so what do I'm talking about? So, so Nash, John Nash, you know, same, same person in Beautiful Mind, if, if, if you've seen that movie, um, you know, define the Nash equilibrium, absolutely crucial figure in game theory. Um, so he proved a very fundamental theorem. Uh, Nash has a bunch of theorems. This would be Nash's sort of famous theorem in game theory, um, which was that any game, Right? So it could have any finite number of players. Each player could have any finite number of options. And there can be arbitrary player payoffs for every possible outcome of the game. So sort of really like completely general model, um, modulo finiteness. He showed there exists a Nash equilibrium. What's a Nash equilibrium? Well, it's basically like a stable point. Okay? So it basically means every, everybody's behaving in a way which for them is optimal given what everybody else is doing. Okay? So if nobody else moves, I don't want to move either. Okay, so I'm doing what's called the best response. I'm, I'm doing the best thing for myself given what everyone else is doing. If that's true simultaneously for everybody and nobody wants to move, that's what's called the Nash equilibrium. And Nash proved that, that at least one Nash equilibrium always exists in any game. And this is really kind of the bedrock of game theory because it means you can literally write down any game, any game at all, anything you can think of. And when you talk about the Nash equilibrium, you're, you're talking about something well-defined, right? Like you, you just, I mean, you can speak about out equilibrium outcomes of the game. There might be more than one, so you might have to worry about kind of which equilibrium do you want to talk about, but it's, it's hard to overstate kind of how solid a foundation that puts everything on, to just know that you always know what you're talking about in any game whatsoever. Now, Nash proved his theorem um, using a fixed point theorem, actually he gave a couple of proofs, one with a more sophisticated fixed point theorem, Kakatangi's fixed point theorem, but there's also a simpler proof he gave using Brouwer's fixed point theorem. And we now understand that it's in some sense even basically equivalent um, to Brouwer's fixed point theorem. So it's really a sort of a fundamental, you know, Nash's theorem is sort of a fundamentally fixed point, you know, type result. And, you know, what's curious about these fixed point results is they really, I mean, they're very indirect, put it that way, right? So, so Nash's argument does not go, okay, take an unhappy person, make them happy, you know, take another unhappy person, make them happy, and then at some point, you're done and everybody's happy. That is not how the proof goes. Okay, the proof is very indirect. So you don't really, from his proof, from this guarantee of existence of equilibria, 
the proof really gives no insights about any plausible behavioral process by which players would actually reach an equilibrium. That's the sense in which I mean it's sort of a non-constructive or existential result. Like, you know, the stable point is out there, but if you're at an unstable point, there's no guarantee that it'll just sort of naturally wiggle its way and get to the stable point. Now, in some types of games, that's going to be true. Like the traffic routing games I was speaking about, actually, you do have very nice sort of constructive properties of equilibria. But at the level of generality, of abstraction that Nash was talking about, there's really no hint at how you would ever reach it. And as the years went on, um, you know, mathematicians and game theorists, you know, started to understand that it seemed like a fairly ill-behaved mathematical object, Nash equilibria. It's always there. You know, but for example, if you make small perturbations to a game, the set of Nash equilibria can change dramatically, right? As opposed to just moving a little bit, they can actually completely change. Um, and you know, another, so the, another example would be the set of Nash equilibria do not constitute a convex set. Convex set is something that's totally filled in where it contains all of its line segments. Um, so in general, Nash equilibria are just sort of a bunch of kind of isolated points, okay? And um, so there was this, you know, you know, I think if you asked, you know, any kind of economist or game theorist, you know, how nice, how nice of an objects do you think Nash equilibria are in general? Or if you ask them, you know, do you think there'd be a sort of simple algorithm for computing one in general? I think most economists and game theorists would have said, eh, probably not. It seems like kind of a messy concept. And then what was cool is like, this was a great opportunity for theoretical computer science and in particular algorithmic game theory to bring kind of its unique skill set to this issue, right? Because really the, you know, right at like the, you know, what's in the, what's more in the wheelhouse of theoretical computer science than proving in a rigorous way that things are sort of non-constructive or that things cannot be found by an efficient algorithm, right? So like if, if you've ever studied sort of NP-hard problems and that kind of stuff, you know, heard of the P not equal to NP conjecture, all of that is work in theoretical computer science, which is ruling out fast algorithms for certain problems, like say the traveling salesman problem. And so, you know, really one of the um, key pillars, really, I mean, this brilliant work that was done, not, not by me, entirely by other people, um, in algorithmic game theory, which, for, you know, made, made precise the sense in which there's, in general, there is no efficient algorithm for computing a Nash equilibrium. Really, it just sort of, it sort of avoids, you know, it's just, you know, Nash, Nash's argument is sort of complicated, and it's a provable sense in which it has to be complicated. You will not be able to just take a sort of short sequence of steps and guarantee yourself that you'll that you'll be in one of these equilibria. Um, and so, right, so that was work that came out kind of in the middle of the aughts, so like ballpark 2005 or so, um, by, let's see, you know, uh, Kostas Daskalakis, Paul Goldberg, Christos Papadimitriou, uh, Shi Chen, uh, Zai Den, and Sheng Wateng. They were some of the key figures in, in, in that work in the mid, in the mid aughts. Um, and so that was brilliant stuff. Uh, but then, you know, tying this back to what we were talking about before, these price of energy bounds, right now it, it sort of seems like, it almost seems like, uh, you know, the snake is eating itself a little bit, right? Because on the one hand, you had algorithmic game theorists proving that, oh, in all these kinds of games, Nash equilibria are guaranteed to be almost as good as the best thing you could hope for. And then in a different part of algorithmic game theory, you've got theorems saying, oh, but players can't find a Nash equilibria. So... Yes, you know, so you, you would conclude that, okay, I guess an equilibrium would be near optimal if you could get one, but then, you know, these other algorithmic game theorists are telling me I shouldn't expect players to actually reach one. So for a brief period of time, for a couple of years there, there was sort of this quandary. Again, so for, for the traffic routing networks I was talking about, there it is relatively easy to find an equilibrium, 
So those theorems were not in so much danger. Right? I mean, it's sort of clear how to interpret them. But for a different game, you know, if you prove that you know equilibria are close to optimal, but you can't prove that players are likely to find it, it's not really clear how to interpret interpret the guarantee, interpret the equilibrium guarantee. So that's that led me um, to uh, probably my kind of you know second to most recent um, kind of significant work on the price of anarchy, which developed um, sort of a toolbox for extending these equilibrium guarantees, which we sort of knew and loved for Nash equilibria and extending them to more permissive notions of equilibria. So if you only know one notion of equilibrium, like Nash equilibrium is like the one you should learn. But if you sort of dig a little deeper into game theory, you find out that there's actually several, several, several other equilibrium notions as well. In fact, there's sort of a hierarchy of equilibrium notions. And what's nice is some of these more permissive equilibria, meaning, right, so like, so like you might have a game where the Nash equilibrium are just kind of these three, three isolated points. And then if you go to one of these sort of more permissive equilibrium concepts, it might be like a nice convex set that includes in particular those three isolated points. So it has the Nash equilibria plus a bunch of other stuff and it's mathematically much better behaved. So when I think about, when I say more permissive equilibrium concept, that's kind of the mental model you should have in mind. All right, it sort of captures all of the Nash equilibria plus other stuff. And moreover, it's sort of a really nice set, right? So just think of it as like a polygon. Um, in higher dimensions. So, so the good news about these more permissive equilibria is they, they are easy to learn in a sense. So if all players use pretty lightweight kind of learning algorithms where they kind of say, okay, let's see how my different strategies have done in the past. And let me sort of move sort of, let, let, me, let me sort of, you know, maybe I don't take the one that's done the best in the past, but at least I take sort of a randomized decision where I favor strategies that have done well in the past. So just sort of simple things like that, where players experiment over time and gravitate towards strategies with good historical performance. Um, if all players just sort of learn in that sort of simplistic way, you actually can prove uh, that players will reach one of these sort of bigger, more permissive equilibrium sets. They may not reach those three isolated Nash equilibria, but they will, they will, they will wind up somewhere in this, sort of, in this sort of bigger region. And so those are, those are very important results from game theory. Um, you know, Foster and Vara and Hart and Maskelel would be some of the key names there. That was sort of late 90s or around the turn of this century. Okay, so point being is Nash equilibria may be hard for players to figure out how to get there. Uh, game theorists had figured out these sort of more relaxed notions where at least we knew the players could figure out how to get there. Right, but so now one still has to connect that back to the, the, the price of anarchy guarantees because price of anarchy is so, so I, I, you know, what, what, is, what is the price of anarchy strict, you know, what, how is it, what's its formal definition? If you have a game and you have an objective function, you know, like you have a traffic network and you care about average delay, right? It's the ratio of two things, you know, on the bottom is the best possible objective function value you could attain, okay? What an altruistic dictator could achieve by controlling everybody's actions. And then the numerator is how well you do it in equilibrium, okay? And so when I, you know, so when I said the 33%, you know, uh, figure for the, for selfish routing, that's because it's, you know, the price of anarchy is four over three. Again, that's as high as it ever gets. Um, now, games, as I sort of mentioned, can have multiple equilibria. So then you have to ask the questions like, okay, well, in this ratio, the denominator is well-defined. That's just like the best you could do. The numerator is supposed to be an equilibrium, but there might be many equilibria, some of which are better than others. So what do you do? And in the formal definition of the price of anarchy, you look at the worst case equilibrium. So you set it up so that any kind of bound on the price of anarchy is as kind of strong as you could hope for. So if you say the price of anarchy is four thirds, what you're really saying is, I don't care what equilibrium people find. 
as long as they find some equilibrium, they're going to be within 33% of optimal. Okay, so that's why it's very satisfying if you can prove a guarantee that's pulled simultaneously for all equilibria. Okay, so that's what the price of anarchy is. But now let's go back to this mental model we had of like we had our three Nash equilibria that were isolated and then this big set that's containing them, right? So the price of anarchy was only saying all three of those isolated points are good, right? All we were proving all these years was that, you know, the Nash equilibria were near optimal. What about all this other stuff, right? So it's fine to sort of move to this more relaxed equilibrium concept, which becomes computationally tractable, but now you might think, okay, probably some of these outcomes are gonna be a disaster. Like the three Nash equilibria, maybe they're good, but now I picked up all this other extraneous stuff. Some of those might not be so good. And so this work I did in, in 2009, which sort of introduced a, a theory of smooth games or smoothness arguments. Basically the, the takeaway from that paper, um, what was it called? It's called the Intrinsic Robustness of the, of the Price of Anarchy. That's the name of the paper. And it basically showed that, you know, the bounds we'd been proving all along for Nash equilibria were in fact far more general than we realized. And so in our minds, we only had these three dots in mind when we proved like our factors of four over three. But actually, if you go back and look at the way we were proving them, uh, the sort of characteristics of the proofs we were using so that the four thirds would hold for this whole big set as well. And so now really the two worlds are kind of reconciled, right? So this, this really says on the one hand, yes, it's true. Nash equilibria might be hard to find. On the other hand, these price of anarchy bounds we've been showing are actually much more robust than we realized. They hold not just for the computationally intractable Nash equilibrium concept, but they hold much more generally, even so generally that they hold for these uh, sort of um, easily learned equilibrium concepts. That's fascinating. So just to kind of try and recap that and feel free to jump in and correct any of this, but basically the price of anarchy notion is for a Nash equilibrium that uh, may or may not be uh, difficult for participants to realistically reach, but we have these more relaxed notions of equilibria that uh, we can reasonably expect the participants in this system to reach. And so it's valuable for us to extend these price of anarchy bounds to those more relaxed equilibria, because then that gives us some realistic guarantee of like, okay, in an, in an actual real world setting, if people are to act selfishly, then it still won't be that much worse than if there was a benevolent dictator um, telling everyone what to do. Exactly right, exactly right. And I should say, I mean, there was definitely, a, a, there was several results, really nice results by others leading up to the 2009 paper I, I mentioned, um, Chris Dudaloo and Kutsupius, uh, and then one by Blum, Hajigai, Leggett, and Roth. And so my contribution there was really kind of showing there's really a, a, a pretty general theory explaining what's going on. Um, but by, you know, but by that point, there were already, you know, the researchers I just mentioned had shown that at least in a bunch of different cases, this seemed to be happening. And then, and then my paper gave sort of the general explanation of, of, of why. So Professor Rothgarten, I guess we were kind of going chronologically, you know, you, you were mentioning how uh, when you were a first year, second year graduate student, you know, you, you went to those conferences and saw those problems and began to tackle them. So that was the uh, line of work regarding uh, algorithm game theory, and we were talking about these different equilibria. I, I guess maybe another line of research that you were doing would, would be auctions. Uh, what are some of the questions there? And I guess maybe both of them kind of in some way eventually converge uh, into the, the current more recent work, the new work you're doing right now on crypto. So maybe before we go into crypto, we can also quickly uh, talk about your, your work in auctions. Sure. Um, right, so I'd say, right, so I already, you know, so, let me use the word, the phrase mechanism design. Uh, you know, auctions are kind of a key application within mechanism design. Mechanism design, you know, it's often described as inverse game theory. So, you know, in game theory, like a game falls from the sky and it's your job to sort of figure out the equilibria or figure out various properties of the game. 
Whereas in mechanism design, in some ways it's very, um, you know, computer scientists really relate to it because it does have a very engineering feel to it. There, it's more like you start with the outcome you want to have happen. And then you ask, how can I set up the rules of a game so that my desired outcome naturally arises as an equilibrium? So how do I sort of, you know, set things up so that players naturally kind of lead to the, to the best possible outcome? And auctions are sort of, a auctions are kind of a special case where you're trying to get an efficient allocation of scarce resources, basically. Um, okay, so I already mentioned mechanism design because I mentioned Nissan and Ronin back in 99. That was a super key paper at the very beginning of algorithmic game theory. There was also, there's another paper more sort of on the, on the AI side that, that, that also was very important and had similar points um, by Lehman, O'Callaghan and Shoah. So those were the two late nineties papers that really kind of kicked off the ball for what was called algorithmic mechanism design, meaning mechanism design to where you also care about things running in polynomial time. Uh, so mechanism design was a part of algorithmic game theory from the very beginning. Um, you know, for example, when I was a grad student, um, you know, an academic twin of mine, meaning someone my same year who also had Ava Tardosh as his advisor, a guy named Aaron Archer, he was working on mechanism design with Ava. Um, and they wrote some nice papers on the topic, including, you know, one from 2001, introducing so-called sort of single parameter algorithmic mechanism design. So, I mean, I was in the thick of it. But I got to tell you, like that whole time I was in grad school, I like didn't understand it at all. I really didn't understand mechanism design. It took, it took me a long time before I sort of got it at all. It's like me right now in this interview. I, I really don't under, understand anything. I mean, it's just. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But so anyway, so, you know, I got to Stanford as an assistant professor. And, you know, at that time, 2003, 2004, I kind of felt like, you know, my ideas in the price of anarchy area were kind of, you know, you know, the marginal value I thought was decreasing of the ideas I was having. Um, you know, which has been a recurring thing, I'd say, in my career. You know, I work on something, I feel like I have some, you know, um, you know, you know, insights that are sort of helpful that other people don't seem to have, at least not yet. And then at some point, I kind of feel like, yeah, you know, the ideas I'm having are also being had by, you know, other people. <laughs> so maybe I, I should, I should move on. So 2003, 2000, I mean, I did still write kind of two more, you know, price of energy papers that I'm particularly proud of after that, but still, for the most part, I was kind of out of ideas in 2000, 2004, um, or high impact ideas, I would say. So, you know, but I, you know, I was clearly an algorithmic game theorist. You know, I started teaching it at Stanford in 2004. Um, and certainly, you know, there was no way I wasn't going to teach the students mechanism design. So I, I, had to, I had to teach myself to teach the students, if nothing else. And I have to say that that first, that first time I taught it in fall 2004, even then I didn't understand it at all. So I don't think I did that great a job teaching it. Uh, but at least I started trying. I started, you know, 2004, 2005, I started putting in the investment, um, you know, which is kind of, it's what I have to do. I mean, I just, I have to put in a lot of time, feel stupid, not get it, you know, be patient, don't get frustrated. And then at some point, you know, things start to click. Um, and then all these things which sort of seemed unrelated and confusing, like all of a sudden you start seeing sort of the big picture and how they interlock. And, that, and that's the point at which you can start doing kind of meaningful research. Um, so I, you know, I, was, I was putting in that time in 2004, 2005. Um, I first started sort of publishing in mechanism design, 2005, 2006, um, a sequence of papers on cost-sharing mechanisms with my first ever PhD student, uh, Mukun Sundarajan. Um, that was a lot of fun, but what it sort of, it naturally led me to something which wound up being a very fertile thing to, to work in, which was, is, is um, basically revenue maximizing auctions. So, you know, one use of auctions is, is the allocation of scarce resources. 
obviously another application would be, you know, someone owns a bunch of stuff and they want to sell it and they want to make as much revenue as possible selling their stuff. And um, so that's, that's the, that's revenue maximizing options. And um, there, there's a famous paper from economics by Roger Meyerson. It's really one of the most beautiful papers I've ever read in any field uh, called optimal auction theory appeared in 1981 mathematics of operations research. And he basically completely solves the revenue maximization problem um, for, for single parameter uh, problems. It's not important that we, that we say what that is, but you know, the simplest case would be just like you're selling one item and you wanna do as well as you can. And the question is, how should you do it? So for example, you know, should you set a reserve price, right? If you're selling, so like, for example, you know, even just say it's like Christie's and you're selling a painting or something. Should they set a reserve price? If so, what should it be? Should it be high, should it be low? You know, given the information that Christie's has about the likely willingness to pay of bidders, how does that inform how they should set that opening bid? So that would be like a very simple version of the optimal auction problem. More generally, Meyerson considered like, suppose you do super crazy things that look nothing like the kind of stuff you see at Christie's. Suppose you just have a crazy procedure. Could you do even better? And Meyerson showed the answer is actually no. Meyerson showed that in, in, in um, at least in sort of the symmetric case where bidders are IID, actually you may as well just use you know, the, the auctions that you see at Christie's with a suitably chosen reserve price. And his theory even tells you exactly how you should set that reserve price, how you should set that opening bid. Um, so I believe it was, you know, 2006, 2007, somewhere around there, Jason Hartline gave me a copy of that paper, you know, it was like, and he just said, I want to think about this. And so I spent some time reading it. And that was one of those moments where things sort of clicked in part because, you know, Meyerson just lays it out so beautifully uh, in that paper. It's the kind of thing that if you're primed appropriately, you can just kind of upload it directly into your brain. That's kind of how clear it is. And, um, and so it was great, it was great, you know, it was, it, was, it was great just to understand it. It was such a beautiful piece of work. But then like so many other things, you know, when a computer scientist actually finally properly internalizes something in economics and game theory, they naturally have instincts and ask questions that an economist or game theorist would not. Or, or if an economist or game theorist would ask it, maybe, they, maybe, maybe it would occur to them, but they would say, ah, I don't think I'm gonna work on that because I'm not sure I could publish it in like a big uh, econ journal. Right. Whereas, you know, computer science, if you're a computer scientist, that's that's not as much of an impediment. So so that it was very much true there that, you know, as soon as I understood it, you know, it was just there were lots of um, interesting directions that immediately revealed themselves. So, um, yeah, I want to keep things short. So let me just uh, I'm trying to think. So there's, there's really three different there's three different threads of research that literally came out of just really understanding Roger Meyerson's paper, all of which, so it's only, let me, let me try to give a short summary. So economists, including in Meyerson's paper, they do what a computer scientist would call average case analysis. So they would say, okay, let's do, you know, Christie's would do some research, you know, try to figure out like what people are likely to sort of be willing to bid and then assume some distribution. Like let's assume it's, you know, uniform distribution between a million and 2 million, something like that. And then, you know, Meyerson would say, okay, you tell me your distributions. You tell me sort of the you know, how value, you know, how willingness to pay is randomly distributed. And I will, I will hand you back, you know, the optimal thing to do, you know, by optimal, I mean, maximizes your average revenue on average over the distributions you assumed. And computer scientists have historically been fairly hostile, I would say, to average case analysis. Um, because in a lot of application domains, you just, the feeling is you don't have a very good feel for what is the distribution that governs, say, the inputs of the, pro of, the, of the problem you're trying to solve. Like if you're trying to solve a traveling salesman problem, you know, do you really want to assume that like 
points or you know iid on the square or something probably not it's probably not what real instances look like um so there's a very kind of worst case bias in computer science where you seek out you know and we saw this already with the price of anarchy right so the worst case um you know that i mean because that's so ingrained in all computer scientists, that was that was sort of the obvious first definition Kutsupius and Papamichu came up with. Oh, there's many equilibria. What, which you know, which one should we look at? Oh, we're gonna look at the worst case equilibrium, and that's in fact the, the title of their paper. The title of their paper is "Worst Case Equilibria." Um, so it's completely embedded in computer science culture to to make minimal assumptions and to strive for guarantees that hold kind of no matter no matter what the input looks like, um, and so. So the short version is, you know, Meyerson's was average case. Um, there was, you know, there was a, there, there was a theory of, of worst case revenue maximization and algorithmic game theory at that time, uh, pioneered by Goldberg and Hartline and Carlin and others. Um, but there was also, you know, there were other theories of worst case revenue maximization waiting to be, um, you know, invented and written about. Uh, and that was what, and that's, that's what I spent a lot of sort of the late aughts um on so 2008 9 10 11 uh i was very focused on that and like i said that turned out to be a very fertile um fertile vein to mine yeah so just to um just to tie together our threads on both price of anarchy and auctions so um both of your stories in your research in these fields kind of seems to be a very nice story of how you started with kind of a kind of relatively simple foundational question in the field and then kind of found ways to add like specific layers of complexity to the question in a way that was interesting and added complexity that people both like economists and real and people in the real world would, real world would find interesting but at the same time you were also able to provide like theoretical insights along the whole way so when you're coming up these questions how do you decide which extensions kind of tick all of these boxes interesting relevant and I guess amenable to theoretical analysis. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, some of the boxes you don't know if they're going to be ticked till after you spend a lot of time on it. To be honest, um, you know, I, one one piece of advice I always give to graduate students, you know, is, you know, whatever you're, you know, whatever you're working on, at least make sure that like the best case scenario of how the research might unfold is like super super interesting. Right, like if even the best case scenario is only mildly interesting, I would recommend working on something else. Now, to be honest, like the best case scenario, you know, sometimes it's like literally just a false statement. <laughs> um, sometimes maybe it's true, but it's it's like just beyond one's abilities to prove at least at least you know in the short term. So often one settles for something which is which is less than the best case scenario. But but so that's the first thing. As I, as I do think it's worth. So for example, you know, like I. Um, you know, like one, like one criterion I use is kind of like, oh, you know, I think, you know, I want to sort of, you know, have a problem or a conjecture or something where I, I can say, oh man, if only I could solve this, I immediately see how to give like a really engaging hour long seminar about it. Right. So, so for me, I mean, this is somehow like research and communicating research for me are, are very, very deeply intertwined to the point that they're almost sort of the same thing. Um, and so it's almost like when I evaluate what research I'm working on, you know, a key tenet is to what extent I think I will be able to excite and or help other people with the results. Um, so that's kind of high level. Um, and a variant of that advice I often give is, you know, when you, 
you know, I should say, okay, so, so in the kind of theoretical research that I do, there's kind of a couple different phases, right? The last phase, which is what, you know, beginning students are by far the most comfortable with, is you've identified not just the mathematical model that you're working with, but you've also identified the mathematical statement that you are hoping is true, that you want to either prove or falsify. And then, you know, then it's like basically a homework problem in a class, right? It's, you can just think of it as a problem set. You can imagine your instructor wrote down the statement and said, you know, prove or find a counterexample. And now you just sort of go and solve the homework problem, hopefully, right? And so what somehow, what you somehow don't, what's somehow very hidden, usually, when you're taking just sort of courses, um, is how much hard work goes in before you get to that point. Okay, so, you know, so, and, and indeed, I really, I mean, I'm happiest when I'm working on something where I feel like no one has articulated the right theorem statement yet. Like, forget about the proof, right? Just like, like, what is it we should even be trying to prove, right? So, and like, you know, we talked about the, um, you know, the paper about, you know, um, price of energy guarantees for sort of relaxed notions of equilibria. That, that's probably one of my favorite examples from my own papers where, you know, that paper introduced the definition, you know, of, of sort of a particular type of proof, you know, and then there was this sort of theorem, which kind of said, um, uh, you know, any proof of this form will lead you to sort of robust bounds. And just, you know, it's not, I don't, you know, who knows, maybe there were pe other people just, you know, one day away from writing down that theorem themselves, I'm not sure, but I've never seen direct evidence that anyone had thought of articulating that particular theorem statement before. Um, and indeed, like a lot of my favorite theorems, once you actually figure out the statement, the proof kind of writes itself, once you kind of figure out just sort of the, the, the right statement to make. Um, so let's see, so your question was about how do I, how do I, right, so I'd say, so, so right, good. So, so another rule of thumb I, I tell graduate students is just kind of, you know, when you're trying to figure out what, what the right theorem statement should be, right, that's how this connects, right? So the first thing I said was just like, how do you even choose like the question? Like, how do you even choose like the direction you're going in? And then there's a question of like, if you don't know the, the if you know the model, but you don't know the theorem statement yet, like what theorem statement should you pursue? And my recommendation is always kind of like, write down the coolest statement that could be true, right? So the most general, most interesting thing that you haven't yet falsified. Now, probably the next step that you do is to falsify it. And so then you refine what's the coolest thing that might be true, because now you've sort of known more. But the point is, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm being a little too sweeping because I do like to go both directions. But I think, you know, often we're taught, you know, start with true, simple things and then try to push them to be kind of more and more general, more and more complicated things that are true. And I guess one way of saying this, like, what's the coolest thing that could be true? That's kind of working in the other direction, where you start with statements that are so powerful and sweeping, they're false. And then you sort of keep refining them and refining them, and then until you get to one that's actually true. So it's almost kind of like a false to true level of working as opposed to the true to false, which I think most of us find maybe a little more natural, or maybe we're just trained that way more. But this false to true version, I think, can be doesn't always work. But there are cases where it, it, you wind up basically short-circuiting all these sort of messy intermediate results you would have otherwise proved along the way, and you wind up actually sort of seeing the big picture earlier than one might have uh, otherwise. So that's another kind of mantra I like. You know, what's try to prove the coolest thing that you don't yet know is that you don't yet know is false. You know, and then and then there's sort of the level of like, okay, once you know the theorem statement, you know, once you know what you think is true, how likely is the proof to be interesting uh, or interesting to mathematicians? And 
that, you know, I, I think if you work every day in mathematical research, you do develop a pretty good instinct, a pretty good guess. But it's hard, I don't know that I have, that's hard to give advice about other than just, you know, keep at it, right? And, and like, you know, and, and talk to more seasoned people. Like if you're a student, talk to your advisor, talk to more senior grad students. Like say, oh, I just, you know, I think this is true. And then like, really, and it, like, I mean, Ava was like amazing at this, right? You just, you'd say a statement that you had some like two page proof for and she'd, and she'd look at it and two seconds later, she'd say, oh, but that's just like complimentary slackness of this like primal dual linear programming pair. And you've got to be demoralized because you'd spend like 80 hours on this proof. And she saw it in like two seconds. But the point is like, that's, that's what trains you to know, you're like, okay, this kind of statement, if this statement is true, it's probably true for like quite straightforward reasons, as opposed to, you know, something where you're like, you know, as opposed to something, like maybe there's something where you kind of have something seems to be true, but it seems to be true for very different reasons and different concrete examples you've looked at, you know, then you're thinking like, oh, wow, if I could unify these, probably this is going to be interesting because it somehow has to specialize separately to these two different things, which looks very different from each other. That would be like a sign that the proof probably is going to be interesting and difficult. But again, that's, it's, it's really, that comes with practice primarily, I would say. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for those insights, Professor Rothgott. And I'll definitely be coming back to revisit these three to four minutes um, over the coming years. And um, yeah, some of those insights, especially the, you know, false to true, and then the thing about research being entangled with how you communicate research. Yeah, it's just incredible. I, I look forward to revisiting this. Absolutely. This is like a treasure trove for any, I would say, aspiring uh, students like us who are trying to become better researchers, uh, better thinkers. But Professor Rothgarden, I guess I'm, I'm from the uh, you know, econ finance side. And, you know, when I talk to people that who are doing investing and, and they often say, you want to develop reps, when, you know, when you have seen hundreds of companies, you can kind of, you know, all of them kind of pr propose this grand vision of what's the coolest thing that they, they can achieve. And then some of them, you can tell, you know, these are the concrete steps you can take and make that thing happen. And some of them, you can tell they're frauds. And, and I, I guess that's also kind of a, a way similar to, to your way of, from a research perspective from you, which is like, what is the coolest thing that could happen for, for this proof? And once you become a better researcher, you have a better intuition regarding what would need to happen to, to piece things together. Um, so, so maybe I guess this is also a good segue towards the cryptocurrency space. So what would be the coolest and most powerful statement you could write about a cryptocurrency or, or you know, decentralized finance or Ethereum? And to what extent have you reduced that statement, refined that statement to, to its current stage now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I should say, I, I like your point that, um, you know, in evaluating companies, you could sort of take some of that, you know, you could take that same approach. Like, if I wanted to be as generous as possible to this team, like, what vision would it have happen? And then also think about, like, how would you falsify it? Like, you know, why, why you know, try to poke holes in that own thesis? So, and if it's too easy to falsify them, or, or then it probably isn't true, or... or Something yeah, like I'd, I'd say I'd say higher level. What both speak to is you know think on think both sides of the issue, right? And it's like you know I think a lot of us are told this frequently, but there are just a lot of forces in the world that push us away from it. So one has to keep reminding oneself, you know, you know, if you believe something, you know, take half an hour and pretend like you're in it, like just become a different person, you know, like just just pretend like actually you know you want you want to do nothing more than kind of like you know, you know, I, you know, playing devil's advocate, but like take it very seriously, basically. And so it's certainly true in, in theoretical research. Um, and, and one piece of advice actually is that I do give to students is, you know, if you're gonna work on a problem, you know, choose a problem where you have the skill set 
to prove it no matter which side is, you know, whether it's true or false, basically, right? And so, because um, it's very dangerous, you know, if you try to prove something because you're sure it's true, you know, and you, and you never think about why it might be false, or if you don't have the, the skill set to actually prove that it's false, if it is false, that's very dangerous. That's how you can waste a lot of time. So that's what, so my grad students, I'm often just saying like, here's a statement, you know, either it's true or false. We should be able to figure out which one it is. You know, it, you know hopefully it's gonna be interesting either way. Let's just go do it, right? So that's kind of like the perfect problem to give to a, to a grad student. And then, but same thing on like a sort of, you know, investment thesis, it's like spend a half an hour, you know, just believing it and coming up with the strongest argument that you could, then spend a half an hour just trying to destroy it basically. Um, and it's really important to go back and forth. It's just so easy to, you know, um, have self-reinforcing beliefs, right? If you don't really actively try to poke holes in sort of, in sort of your own, in your own thesis. Um, okay, so sorry. Uh, no, this right. is, this oh, is great. Right. All, all, all this yeah, is so, a great so, life philosophy, so yeah. <laughs> so I think the right analogy here, you know, so saying like, how would you formalize, you know, cryptocurrency slash blockchain? I mean, the right analogy is not something like what we've been talking about, something relatively narrow like revenue maximizing auctions or pricing energy guarantees i mean the, the analogy i mean it's a little bit like saying like have you boiled down the internet to sort of a very kind of crisp theorem and definition right and, and the answer is no nobody has um and you know the reason i like i like the internet as as an analogy for several reasons i mean obviously you know most cryptocurrencies build on top of the internet but you know let's just i mean i really do you know it would be, you know, I didn't start doing computer science research till like sort of the mid 90s or something. And sort of the web had just sort of barely came out. So, you know, we did, you know, I was aware of the internet since the time I was studying computer science, but still, um, you know, take 1988 or something, like when, you know, when, which I believe was the year TCP IP congestion control uh, or TCP congestion control was invented or was published or something like that. Right. So that, that, you know, I was 13. So I certainly wasn't aware of it or thinking about it. But I wonder if you know working in cryptocurrency blockchain now is what it felt like working on the internet in 1988 or maybe even 1984 or something like that. You know, again, I, I was too young then to know what it felt like, but I really do wonder. Um, and so one, one of the, one of the things I like about the analogies is there's just many layers, right? And so um, you know when you talk about blockchain technology, just like when you talk about the internet, there's many different layers of the stack you can focus on and that are super important where there are really interesting research directions between. Um, so for example, at the very least on the blockchain side, there's, right, so you hear about layer one, for example, layer one, right, so like, like Bitcoin is a layer one, Ethereum is a layer one. What does that mean? That means it's a consensus protocol. So it's a sort of distributed algorithm. So, you know, lots of different computers, hopefully scattered all over the world, hopefully thousands of computers uh, are all running sort of the same software. They send messages to each other over the internet. And then they run this consensus protocol, which keeps them all synchronized so that everybody has the same shared state. So for example, you know, just in Bitcoin, if you're just watching sort of Bitcoins be transferred back and forth between different accounts, you want everybody to agree on which transactions have actually been valid, you want everybody to agree on what everybody's account balances is. So a consensus protocol is a distributed algorithm which achieves that functionality that keeps all of these different nodes synchronized. And again, Bitcoin is a novel um, consensus protocol. Ethereum uh, is a novel consensus protocol. Um, there were consensus protocols, you know, much earlier, a couple of Turing awards have been given out for consensus protocols, but the big, the big sea change with, with Bitcoin is it's a so-called permissionless network. Um, so historically consensus protocols, right? So, so like the historical application would be something like, you know, you're working for IBM, 
IBM as a database. They want the database to have basically, you know, 100% uptime. So I guess you need to replicate the database. So maybe you make like two copies, three copies, four copies of the database. But then it's like, in case one of them goes down, so you can still service queries. But then you're like, uh-oh, but when we have multiple copies of the database, we need to make sure all the copies of the database are the same. We need to keep them synchronized. So just forget about the internet. We'll just have our own little private network by which the different copies of the database can talk to each other and stay in sync, okay? And you know, then, so these, these early computer science pioneers, you know, people like Barbara Liskoff and Leslie Lamport um, developed uh, protocols by which you, know, you could do this. And in particular, they, they characterized, right? So they proved really interesting theorems of the form, like how many machines, so suppose you, suppose you want your database to stay up as long, you know, as long as at most one machine fails in a given day. Right? How many copies of a, how many copies of the database do I need? Right? And then the answer, they'd say, oh, the answer is four, no more, no less, something like this. Right? And so, but the point is, like, that's very different than when we think about like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Right? I mean, that was like IBM built, you know, bought four copies of database, connected it with their own network. There's no concern about like who anybody is. Like, we know who the four databases are. They're all talking to each other. There's no adversaries. You know, maybe something goes down, but other than that, there's nothing to worry about. Whereas Bitcoin is a consensus protocol where literally anybody can just show up and join, right? So like, you know, the other people running the Bitcoin protocol, you can't, you don't know them from a dog. They could be anybody, right? M many of them could be controlled by the same party. You have no idea, right? So that's, that's the big, you know, that's so 21st century consensus protocols. Well, no, but so specifically sort of, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and blockchains of that ilk, the big novelty is their permissionless nature. The fact that the set of participants is not fixed and known a priori. Okay, so that's layer one. So layer one is kind of like, let's just, let's just keep all these machines that don't know anything about each other, let's just keep them in sync, okay? And there's great research opportunities there. So that's, and so that's you know, I'd say that's where, the, there's, there's the, that's where the most academic work has happened. I think in part because it's sort of relatively well-defined and in part because, you know, the earliest blockchain technologies, you know, Bitcoin, et cetera, are layer ones and because it connects rather strongly to an existing academic discipline, namely the theory of distributed computing, right? So like these results by Lamport and, and um, Liskov and Lynch and so on that I, that I mentioned. So for all those reasons, there's, there's, a, there's a big literature on layer one blockchain protocols. I still think there's a ton to be done. I have been doing work on layer one uh, and even on consensus protocols, specifically with, with Andy Lewis Pye at, at London School of Economics, um, but still that's relatively well-developed. A lot to do still, but relatively well-developed. Now there's a layer zero. Layer zero would be basically the peer-to-peer -peer network on which uh, the consensus protocol operates. So that's starting to get sort of more distant from my expertise, but it's really super interesting. I, literally just earlier today, I was watching a talk that was all about, you know, what, you know, how do you do things at layer zero so that layer one works as effectively as possible. Then there's layer two. Layer two is, is, is so-called scaling solutions. So Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, they only produce so many, they, they only process so many transactions. So Bitcoin, I think the best case scenario is something like seven transactions per second. Ethereum, the best case scenario is maybe twice that, um, but really several orders of magnitude less than where you'd like to be. You'd like to be certainly thousands of transactions per second, if not more than that. So layer two, those are all, those are all proposals for how to basically, it's kind of like you're going to have like a sort of, you know, tree of blockchains. You're gonna have a hierarchical structure where your layer one is kind of like the root, which is kind of like the, you know, the ground truth. And then you're going to have these sort of subsidiary um, blockchains, which sort of, you know, basically 
takes, take, take, for example, take a bunch of the computation off the plate of layer one and move it off chain. Um, anyway, so, so there's layer one, which is the basic consensus protocol. There's layer two, which is basically trying to have a, a 100X increase, I would say, at least in the transaction processing. Um, and layer two, there's really cool stuff. So there's, there's really interesting game theory questions. Um, there's really interesting cryptography questions. So like for Ethereum, the main, you know, one of the main scaling solutions are these things called rollups, uh, where again, the point is you kind of, you can sort of keep, you make a, on layer one, you keep a record of what sort of, um, of what uh, transactions have been carried out, but the computation is all done off chain. Um, but you need to somehow sort of prove that the off chain computation is valid. So there's optimistic rollups, which rely on game theory. There's ZK rollups, which rely on zero knowledge proofs. So again, not a, you're not supposed to like this is not supposed to make sense in real time. I'm just trying to like paint the picture of how big what's going on is, right? And how, yeah, right. Okay. And then on top of layer two, you have the application layer. So like DeFi, for example, decentralized finance, that would all be still on top of that, right? So if you're writing kind of a DeFi app, you basically just want to trust that the consensus protocol and, and sort of the scale, the scale extension of layer two, you just want to trust that they can handle whatever you throw at them. Right. You're really just trying to sort of take input from users and basically kind of like send messages to sort of your contracts that are on sort of the main chain, just like a, just like in the Internet stack. Right. I mean, you know, if you're if you're designing a website, you're not thinking about, you know, you're not thinking about TCP. You're not thinking about congestion control. You're not thinking about routing. You're not thinking about the IP protocol. You know, you're not thinking about, you know, uh, you know how the network's wired together, et cetera. So same thing in, in the blockchain world this application layer where ideally you would know nothing about what's going on underneath. Now, realistically today, to do a really good job, sort of writing kind of smart contracts and developing applications, you do actually need, it's good if you do know a fair amount about what happens beneath you, but hopefully those abstractions will become cleaner as time goes on. So, so point being is, I mean, I really feel like almost all, I mean, there's enough going on here to occupy almost any type of computer scientist I can think of, right? So theoreticians, you know, hardware people, you know, networking people, um, you know, HCI people, you know, the application level. I mean, I, in my view, really what's happening is, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if I want to call it a new area of computer science or a new discipline, but it's certainly kind of a new unique synthesis of stuff across the computer science spectrum, which is just extremely fascinating. So, so I'm just, I've been sort of drinking from the fire hose for the last couple of years. I'm trying to teach myself all kinds of things I never had time to learn before. Um, you know, including sort of stuff like traditional finance and, um, you know, relevant programming languages stuff, et cetera. But ultimately, I'm just trying to, right, which goes back, you know, we talked earlier, I talked about how mechanism design, there's just this, like, when I pick up a new field, there's just this long period of sort of deep confusion. And I just have to sort of be, get comfortable with it and almost like lean into the confusion, I would say. And so I'm very much in that stage in the blockchain world. Um, I think a lot of people are. Um, so I'm really just looking for opportunities of little pieces I can sort of bite off and uh, make a contribution. Um, and so, right, so like, like some layer one stuff I did, you know, with Andy Lewis Pi, you know, we had a couple specific theorems, which basically kind of explain the dichotomy you see between different types of layer one protocols, so-called liveness uh, favoring protocols, you know, like, like Nakamoto consensus longest chain versus safety favoring protocols like, like BFT protocols. So we approved a theorem, which is sort of fundamentally, there is a fork in the road, you have to choose one or the other. Um, but that was that's a, that was a bite-sized piece, which sort of connected to, you know, what's happening in a layer one world. 
Um, I did some work on, on Ethereum's, uh, uh, on, this, on this proposal called EIP-1559, which is gonna be this big change to the way transactions are charged for, are priced on the Ethereum network. Um, that again, um, it was kind of right in my wheelhouse. It's really sort of a mechanism design question fundamentally. Um, and, but it's an interesting mechanism design question because there's stuff you can do kind of in traditional uh, mechanism design applications, which you can't do in the blockchain. So blockchain just by nature of its sort of uh, permissionless setting, you know, for example, the fact that you have to rely on sort of miners, self-interested miners to sort of execute your mechanism that imposes a lot of challenges. That means you have to rethink the mechanism design problem. Um, so that was another example of, you know, hopefully, you know, it's an important problem in the sense that, you know, it helps, um, you know, so, I, you know, hopefully that work helps the Ethereum community kind of better understand the game theoretic properties of this new transaction fee mechanism. But it's really, it's, it's again, you know, it's nibbling off a relatively bite-sized piece. I mean, it is like 58 pages, so it's not that small, <laughs> but it's still like, it's something I could get my head around and work on and produce something, you know, in a time frame of months. Um, and so I'm very much in this stage. On the one hand, I'm spending some of my time trying to piece together a global view of everything that's happening, um, or at least the closest approximation that I can, while at the same time looking for sort of these specific, you know, opportunities where I can actually contribute meaningful research. So sort of both of those are happening for me at the same time right now in parallel. Professor Rothgarden, that is so much to, to unpack. I mean, the, the reason we, we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the reason why Sam and I are, are reaching reach out to you is because uh, we, we interviewed Professor Matt Weinberg, who was a mechanism designer, a computer scientist at Princeton, and, and his work had a lot of intersection uh, with cryptocurrency. I interviewed Alex Tabrik, who is an economist at George Mason University, and, and he's also one of the mainstream economists who, who is um, learning more about from the economics perspective uh, what to do with a lot of the crypto projects. And he's sort of acting as an economist, uh, chief economist role to a lot of those projects. So, and when we talk to them, they say so much noise in this space. If you're an average person, someone who's curious, you go on CNBC, they're all talking about decentralized finance. They're all talking about Bitcoin. Everybody's trying to give price predictions, you know, 40K, 60K, you know, investment banks are writing reports about this, but it seems that nobody actually understands what is going on. And a lot of mainstream ac academics certainly are very skeptical of this whole, you know, crypto people. I mean, economists are saying you guys use so much energy, like you, you guys are probably not going to live up to the promise, blah, blah, blah. So I, I guess from, from our perspective, may, maybe even going to the, to the beginning, what made you want to come to this crypto space at, at the beginning? Because you, you did say it almost felt like, you know, working at the beginning of the Internet. And also, um, what, were, what are some of the ob major obstacles that you would currently identify that, that you think would be nice for people to, to because if you, if you talk to CNBC people, they'll, they'll say, you know, all kinds of new problems. And it seems that there are a million projects people are working on. But what do you think are the actual core problems that people should understand? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's several things going on here. I mean, one is, right. I mean, so there's this kind of, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's a, I mean, it's not really a serious question, but like the, you know, in the blockchain world, you know, people ask, you know, are you in it for the money or for the tech? Right, is something you sort of hear a lot, um, and you know that's a telling statement because I mean, what's really, as far as I know, kind of unprecedented is how intertwined the technology and the investing is with cryptocurrencies and blockchain. I mean, I mean, clearly, like one of the big innovations here is, you know, um, 
you know, in incentivizing things through tokens, which are not, you know, in a way that has not historically been done with, say, typical companies. Right. So, like, for example, you know, and you can argue whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, like, uh, you know, suppose, like, you know, imagine I had heard about Coinbase really early on and I thought it was awesome. Right. And I somehow wanted to, one, support them beyond just being a user of Coinbase to invest in them. Right. So for some random person like me, like it's not obvious how I would have done that. Like I, I couldn't have like just, you know, there wasn't going to be an open call for a seed, a seed funding round or something like that for, for a traditional company, like say, a, say Coinbase. Now, once, once it IPOs, many, many, many years later, yes, at that point, you know, I can go to TD Ameritrade or whatever and sort of, you know, buy some stock. Whereas somehow, I mean, what's crazy is basically, you know, a lot of these, you know, you know, uh, crypto companies, you can basically be an investor from day one, right? So it's, it's kind of like all of a sudden everybody can participate in the seed round if they want, you know, and a lot of those participants are themselves kind of heavy users of those protocols as well. And so that's just, I mean, so I think that's part, there's a lot of things going on um, about why there's so little sort of signal to noise. But one thing that's funny is it's kind of like, even if you care primarily about the tech, right? You still actually have to understand, I think a fair amount about like, like really like the tokenomics of these protocols are part of the tech, right? So it's kind of like, you know, if you have a great consensus protocol, but you don't have a pathway by which people are incentivized to adopt it and build on it and so on, it's not gonna, it's not gonna succeed. Right? Maybe you could write a research paper about it, but you're not gonna be a serious competitor of Ethereum say, without really understanding kind of the incentive pathway for adoption. Um, and, and things like things like token price then really sort of actually matter. <laughs> um, so that's, that's what the tokenomics part. The, exactly. How do you incentivize exactly. How do you price things. I see. Exactly. I mean, and even even like say Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? I mean, sort of the equilibrium, like the security of those blockchains, you know, does you know sort of depend on you know the the current price of Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? I mean, I mean, if Bitcoin drops by a factor two, you know, at equilibrium, you definitely expect the hash rate to go down significantly. Um, and then you're more susceptible to a 51% attack. You have less hash power. I mean, so, so this again, I mean, this is what's like, I mean, I, probably there's some precedent, but, but I can't think of one where somehow like you basically can't assess the technology and sort of, you know, how good or bad it is without actually, you know, understanding price dynamics, you know, the, the, you know, the incentives of the token and, and actually, you know, caring about the market price a little bit. So that's, that's one of the things that's going on. It's like even people who normally, would just say like, whatever, I'm in it for the tech. Like you still have to actually care about all this other stuff, right? And I, Obviously, and I guess I mean, just, I'm not, to, go ahead. just to quickly interject, a lot of these uh, governance tokens, say if, if you buy Ethereum, if, if you own enough of those governance tokens, you have voting rights on it, right? So you can vote, you can decide the fate of the project. So it's certain, certainly political theorists would, would also come in and talk about things, but that is also why tokenomics matter because that is the decentralized mechanism of, through which uh, decisions are made is through those tokens. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, there's, there's, there's different flavors of tokens. But that's certainly that's certainly an important one. And, you know, often the token has multiple roles, you know, like, you know, so for example, if you look like Uni, Uniswap or something as an example, you know, uni tokens, they're currently governance tokens. But, you know, it's possible that at some point in the future, you know, there'll be a governance proposal to actually have dividends go to uni holders as well, you know, and so that could have that sort of second role. We'll see. But I mean, that's something that, that, that could happen. Um, so that's, that's, that's one reason for all the confusion. Another reason is just, you know, new, new technology is often, I think, covered very poorly in the mainstream media. Um, like if you go back to, again, 
you guys are too young for this, but like if you went back to articles about the internet in like 1995 or something, uh, you know, you've got people like, you know, Paul Krugman on record saying that basically the internet would be as influential as a fax machine. Um, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist um, who has, has done a lot of great things, but um, had a very wrong prediction about the internet, right? So I think, so that's also part of what's going on. It's just sort of new. And again, like this is something where really most of the people in the space don't understand it very well. I certainly don't feel like I understand it very well. Um, and so it's to the point that even the technologists, like, and, and part of the problem is it's hard to even communicate it until you understand it very clearly in your own mind. I mean, to me, that's always been like the two-step approach to like teaching, like number one, teach myself <laughs> and understand it. And then number two, figure out the clearest way to convey that understanding to others, right? And, and I'm very much still in step one in this space. And I think most people are very much just in step one. So I'd say it's, 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 that, it's, so it's and then of course, there's like, you know, the, the obviously the, you know, the volatility gets people's attention. It makes for great news headlines. You know, then you've got, right, you've got the whole thing with kind of the environmental aspects of like proof of work blockchains, like Bitcoin, Ethereum 1.0. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that. Uh, <laughs> to, to understand. I mean, part of, it, I mean, part of what's <laughs> fun about the whole thing, I mean, it is, I mean, it's just, it, it is very exciting, I have to say. I mean, even though, <laughs> I mean, even all the weird stuff, I mean, just, I don't know. It's just, it's fun to work on something that's both this sort of, you know, really new area of computer science, like rising up like a wave under us at the same time while also somehow being of some interest to almost everybody it seems i mean it's kind of it's, it's kind of amazing they're having at the same time right so it's, so anyways so, um, so, so, so maybe we should jump into uh eip 1559 because that is one main project you're, you're working sure, on eip stands sure. for ethereum improvement proposal and that is this update that is uh, supposed to it's scheduled to go live this july july 2021 uh, and it would change the fee structure for Ethereum. And, you know, it, it's like a very major update that everybody's been talking about. So how did you come up, come across this idea? Maybe gave us the, the uh, layman's kind of explanation on, on this, on this thing. Sure. So, um, yeah, this was something, I mean, this had been talked about for quite a while. Um, I think I was approached to do work on it in maybe, I'm guessing something like June, 2020. So I was approached by a member of the Ethereum community. Um, I had heard of it already at that point, but, um, but I wasn't actively thinking about it. But then someone reached out and said, you know, would you be willing to do this as a formal project? You know, and like I said, it, it felt like a perfect storm. I mean, it was really kind of, you know, you know, right in my wheelhouse as a mechanism designer, but also with enough differences that it was scientifically, I thought, extremely interesting. Plus, I mean, you know, there was like what's, like what's amazing, you know, and this, this, ties, this is partly your answer of like, why did I get into blockchains in the first place? I mean... You know, it's very unusual to have such a strong external demand, like hunger even for, you know, formal analysis, right? So, you know, once, so, one, so 2017, I started getting cold calls from startups saying like, we really need a computer scientist who understands mechanism design. And I was like, and, you know, and, was, you know, and obviously like, you know, the, the big data companies, like there was that demand before, but it was like a new thing. It's like, a, there's a totally new source of demand for my skill set. Um, and, um, where was I going with this? Um, someone gave you a call. Sakoshi Nakamoto, the, the guy that nobody knows, knows about, gave you a call and said, Tim, yeah. please come work for us. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I remember now. So, so, right. So as a person, so for, for the EIP 1559 thing, like one thing that was attractive was just 
it was this perfect mix of stuff I understood and stuff I didn't understand, but but like was was going to be tractable to understand. So I mean, it's really, I mean, it's really just, I mean, it was a great project handed to me on a silver platter, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of very grateful for that. Um, but, but there was also, I mean, the other thing that, that made it very easy to accept, right, to, you know, to, to, to agree to it, is there was a palpable hunger from the Ethereum community for a more academic analysis of EIP 1559. Um, and so even, so Tim Biko, who's sort of a key figure in the Ethereum community, he even did a community outreach survey so he reached out to lots of Ethereum stakeholders. He reached out to miners. He reached out to people who write, you know, wallets. He reached out to exchanges, and he said, like, how does everyone feel? It? You know, this was this was in October, I think, 2020. So not so nine months ago, and so 1559. There were definitely people who wanted it, but there were other people who were nervous. And so he said, you know, one of the things he said is like, how how can we make you feel more comfortable with us making this really big change to the transaction fee mechanism? And, you know, people mentioned a couple of things, but one of the top things they mentioned was that they wanted to see a formal specification and analysis of the transaction fee mechanism. And they were, they were one of the reasons they were nervous is they had not seen that. Um, you know, and, and Vitalik Buterin sort of wrote, wrote about all the ideas for sort of several years. And in some sense, you, you could say that a formal specification is kind of there in what he wrote, but it wasn't, you know, it still wasn't at the level of kind of, um, you know, mathematical precision. Um, you know, that, that's in my report. I'm sure he could have done that if he wanted, but, um, you know, I, I sort of made it totally precise mathematically. And then I, I was the first one who really formally interrogated its game theoretic properties. Um, and so the point is like, I mean, it's just to be able to do a research paper where you know that like the day you publish it, probably more than like a thousand people will look at it. I mean, that's actually very unusual for sort of a, an academic, especially sort of a, a theoretical leaning academic such as myself. So just like I said, a perfect storm, a really good match for my skill set, um, and it just really felt like it would be helpful to a relatively large community of people. So, you know, it's it's really up to them to say whether it has, but 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 I hope that it has. So, with all of the oh. insight we're hearing from you, I'm almost inclined to think that Tiger and I might be speaking with Satoshi Nakamoto right now. Uh, don't think so. Um, <laughs> yeah, the real Satoshi would never say yes, but but yeah. yeah. All good. <laughs> So I forgot, I forgot to answer what your question, what is 1559? Well, basically, um, it's, it's, you can think of it as basically moving to congestion pricing. If I had to summarize it in one sentence, that's sort of how I'd summarize it. So basically right now, people just have to sort of um, make up their own prices that they are willing to pay for their transactions to be executed. And then they leave it to miners to sort of just, you know, pick, basically pick the highest bidders. Um, so in effect, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're bidding in basically a, a first price auction. Um, you're trying to bid higher than all of the other people trying to get their transactions into the blockchain. And that's sort of a, that's a tricky problem to figure out exactly how to bid. And so now there's really gonna be more like a, a price that the protocol computes internally. So the protocol itself will be monitoring whether it seems like you know, the, the, the current price should go up or down depending on signals of demand in the most recent blocks. So you can think of it as like sort of a, a congestion pricing constantly adjusting at a pretty short time scale. So what would be the most basic intuitive way to, to understand why people are constantly talking about mining or fees or, you know, the, the gas, that, that's kind of the term for Ethereum. I mean, why do we care so much about fees? Because I, I suppose the fees are the way we price the incentives, we price the scarce resources, and not everybody can use Ethereum, so we have to allocate the resources. Is that the reason? I mean, everybody's talking about fees. Right. Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally sort of supply and demand. So... 
Um, if not many people wanted to use Ethereum, you could just set the fee to be zero and that would be, that would be fine basically. Um, but the problem is like if the fee was actually zero, there's a zillion, you know, you would, people would spam the network, people would start storing their, you know, um, you know, files on Ethereum or who knows what, right? If it was, I mean, they're, they're in some sense, like if the, if the fee is zero, people will fill up the blockchain with just not very valuable stuff, right? So you, you really can't get away from fees if you want to have an economically efficient allocation of your scarce resource, which is real estate on the blockchain, right? So on the one hand, you don't have room for everybody. And then on the other hand, like of the people you want to include versus exclude, you like the higher value transactions to be included and the lower value transactions to be excluded, right? So how do you know what's the value of a transaction, right? You can't just, you can't just know if you're the protocol. You can't just ask people because they might sort of tell you that, oh, this is value a billion to me, right? They just make up a number if they didn't have to pay it. So how do you actually sort of figure out, how do you screen? How do you figure out who's the high value transactions, who's the low value transactions? You charge a price. Right, the low value transactions are not going to be willing to pay the price. The high value transactions will be. So that's that's what the that's what the transaction fees are meant to do. Just sort of perfectly split it so that you know you fill up the blocks 100% and they're filled up with sort of exactly the highest value transactions where the value is at least the price. Anyone whose value is below the price, sorry, you know demand was too high. You got excluded. And so basically, you know, in the current setting, basically it's up to the users themselves to figure out what this magical price is. And then in the new version, the protocol will actually take on that burden itself. And the protocol will internally figure out what the right price is supposed to be. So it, the, the direction that Ethereum or decentralized finance, I mean, we were kind of drawing this picture of layer two, layer three, people are continuing to build on it. What do you think is the general direction it's headed towards? Because I mean, we're kind of having a conversation that is more related to computer science. But if you talk to economists or regulators, let's, let's talk about you know, policymakers or the average mom and pop in the mid Midwest, when they uh, wanna interact with the crypto community, what are the obstacles? I mean, it sounds like right now the fee structure for one is very unclear. It's hard for the regulators even to figure out uh, how much people are actually paying when they're giving the money to, to, to this protocol. Is there an intermediary? Who am I giving my money to? So I guess from, from your vantage point, is Ethereum after this update headed towards a, a place that is more transparent, that's clear fee structure, and that is more towards the vision that can be regulated under some more mainstream framework that people can conceptualize? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know that I see any direct interaction between the switch of transaction fee mechanism and regulatory aspects. Um, and in general, I would say that um yeah um so, so i'm not sure i'm not sure that i doubt that'll make that big a difference um you know i think on the on the regulatory side i mean i, I sometimes think this issue is painted as much too binary like either it's regulated or it's not and i definitely think that's the wrong way to think about it i think a lot of people in the crypto space would be happy to have regulation as long as it was consonant with innovation um, and again, this is, this is, you know, and so, and so I think and there has, you know, there has to be a decision made by the US government and other governments, you know, what kind of approach are they going to take, right? And again, I think the internet is an interesting analogy, right? Because in the 90s, the US government had to decide, you know, again, the question wasn't like whether or not to regulate at all. The question was like, what's going to be the shape of the regulations? And I, this, I'm far from an expert on this, but my understanding is that, you know, under the Clinton administration, uh, there was a pretty... Um, you know, they're, you know, they, they established, you know, their approach to regulating, you know, um, 
commercialization of the internet was uh, fairly friendly to innovation. Um, and and my, my, you know, at least I've heard many people speak about that as a big success. Like, like part of the reason the US is sort of so dominant um, uh, in tech is, is, because of, is because of the, you know, forward thinking approach that was taken back in the 90s. And so I think, you know, and I, I do, you know, I think, you know, is this gonna be as big as the internet? I don't know, but this is big. I mean, I think this is gonna be one of the, I mean, I think the 2020s, you know, this will be a big part of the tech conversation, at least for this entire decade. And I think it's, so I think it's a big enough new paradigm that again, I mean, I think kind of, you know, there, there just seems, I mean, I, I think there's, there's really like a, a you know, a policy decision that needs to be made. Like, are we going to be scared of this and try to really kind of limit how much, you know, um, how much innovation can happen in the US in this space? Or are we going to try to really um, actually become sort of global leaders, you know, in this technology? Because you got to believe that some parts of the world are going to be perfectly happy to just try to try to lead in the space. And the US has to sort of decide if, if it wants to be one of those or not. Professor Rafagani, I guess the, the, the better way for me to have phrased my question would be, how did you feel like uh, EIP 1559 was fitting into the, the broader kind of timeline or, or spectrum of, of innovations of Ethereum? Is this leading up to a, a serious set of, of updates or innovations that will continue to shape Ethereum towards a certain form? And, and you know, we were talking about at the, at the beginning of this section, what's the best case scenario kind of grandest statement we can write is that statement in you you guys eyes kind of like you know average midwest mom and pop everybody is using smart contracts you, you open your phone and it's running on um, some some app on the, the the blockchain layer three layer four whatever and to get there we would need to solve a series of problems one of which at this current stage is 1559 and then we do the next one and we the next one so just to plot that kind of vision out right. for, for us. Right, maybe. right. Yeah, I would say I, you know, I think 1559 is good for Ethereum. Um, I mean, the two, there's several benefits, but the two people focus on, uh, one is, as we were saying, it just makes, it makes it, it's just much simpler, right? You, I don't have to figure out the price myself, right? The protocol just tells me the price. So that's just a much, that's sort of much easier for apps building on top of it. Much, it should be better for the user experience ultimately. And that was the original goal. Um, it also arguably improves Ethereum's tokenomics. It's sort of, uh, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's natural inflation in Ethereum because miners are paid with newly minted ethers. Uh, but 1559 includes a, a burning mechanism which actually imposes a sort of countervailing deflationary pressure, um, which many people believe will be sort of good overall for the, for the currency. Um, as far as like, I don't know that I view 1559 as, as absolutely necessary for achieving the big grand vision um, that, that I think you, um, you, know, you did a nice job of spelling out where, and, and again, like I keep going back to the internet as an example, but like, I mean, the point is right now, like, like you say, you open your smartphone, you know, you bring up right the Twitter app or whatever, like you're not thinking about like how your phone is connecting to the nearest base station. You're not thinking about how the base station is sort of getting, you know, sending data to and getting data from, you know, Twitter servers or whatever. And that's all just totally hidden. Um, and things are not, you know, definitely, you know, you can't, I mean, you know, even just, I don't know. I mean, even just something like sort of figuring out MetaMask and like worrying about, you know, keys and stuff. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in, in the blockchain world, which is just really too, I mean, it's not, 
I mean, it needs to become trivial to sort of perform functions, I would say, for, for mass adoption. Like you say, I mean, I do think that's just kind of a sequence of problems that has to, has to happen, right? And, and again, like, you know, the, 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 you know, the internet existed way before the web, it's important to remember, right? So like in the 80s, like, you, like who was using the internet, it was really just, you know, big tech geeks, right? Using bulletin boards, and, you know, some early email adopters and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and it was harder to use, right? You really had to know more about how the system worked in order to use its functionality, right? But then, you know, as things got more and more abstracted away, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it lowers the, the, the barrier to anyone else using it. So, you know, I, I, I'm sort of expecting to see some kind of roughly similar trajectory um, in crypto. I mean, I do think, you know, like 2025, it's not clear to me, it'll, I'm not sure that's, that's feels a little soon to me to really be easy for everybody to use. 2030, I think maybe, maybe, you know, I think best case scenario is 2030, yeah, people are opening their, their mobile, their mobile, uh, their phone, you know, and they're basically just kind of, you know, using the blockchain for payments and God knows what else, so. Yeah, so Professor, and, I've got, oh, And one thing to be said, I guess, is, you know, like, like in 1988, right, when people were just trying to get the internet to kind of like function relatively decently, like avoid, you know, like avoiding congestion collapse through the TCP protocol and just these very kind of technical innovations. Like in 1988, no one would have been able to predict like say Uber, <laughs> right? I mean, like, which, you know, obviously does like require the internet, right? To, to be the killer app that it does, right? And so, you know, it's just like, it feels like, you know, so that, that would have been, you know, so 88 was gonna be 20 years before Uber or something. So if you fast forward 20 years from now, so right now, what are we doing? Like people are basically trying to get everything to like, just kind of work <laughs> more or less. And so that at least kind of very savvy people can like have non-trivial functionality, right? So like, if we fast forward 20 years from now, like what's gonna be the analog of Uber in 2040? I mean, that's like an unanswerable question, I think. But I think if you just look at patterns, I think there's reason to believe there will be some analog, that there will be, you know, that people your age in 2040 will not be able to imagine a world where you didn't have, you know, crypto being part of sort of day-to-day, day-to-day, uh, the, the, the fabric of day-to-day -day life. So Professor Roughgarden, just to put a kind of mechanism design spin on um, all of our discussion so far on crypto, uh, what would you say, maybe, would you be able to come up, would you be able to uh, provide like kind of a short list of like four to five key kind of mechanism design or incentive considerations that you think are kind of really underpinning what crypto is struggling with right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question to answer on the spot. Um, yeah, I'd say, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, one thing I get asked about a lot and I don't have very good answers for is, you know, uh, different approaches to tokenomics. So basically, you know, protocols want to incentivize adoption. As we discussed briefly, there's different types of tokens. Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's sort of a big design space there of how to structure the incentives around the token of a protocol. And it'd be very nice to have some sort of simple taxonomy, you know, like here's, you know, here's one approach that's been successful. Here's another approach, here's another approach here, the trade-offs between them. And it'd be nice if there is, you know, ultimately it'd be nice if there's some cookie cutter approach where, you know, a startup five or 10 years from now, just been like, oh, you know, our token model is sort of the standard one, which has worked in all these previous cases. Um, 
so that you know that that really is and that really is an incentive slash game theory problem right so just guidance for sort of new protocols about how to set up rules around you know the the token usage and sort of what to expect that's a really big one um let's see um i guess sam and i were just trying to get a sense of what are some of the big questions on your mind left unaddressed or just in general what do you think the crypto space whether in ethereum or bitcoin or other projects have to address if they were to the key bottlenecks yeah yeah um so good so, so i take i mean those are sort of two separate questions so so for other stuff I'm, so, so that's an important question i think another important so one of the killer apps so far of DeFi has been uh dexes decentralized exchanges you know uniswapping a good example um, but there's other examples like balancer and curve um, and that, I, that the so-called automa automated market makers, there it feels like uh, there should be a, a very nice theory. And actually, there's um, there's a few researchers uh, who have already been sort of spelling out that theory. Um, there's a nice sequence of papers by Tarun Chetra and Alex Evans and um, I forget his last name, but uh, and, and Garris, I think is his last name, um, who started this theory. But so again. For me, like I want to develop theory that gives guidance to designers, right? So I want to basically take something off the plate of someone who's sort of building a new exchange or building a new protocol, right? So I, so right, because ideally, like like for example, suppose today you wanted to write a compiler for a programming, you wanted to sort of invent a new programming language and write a compiler for it, right? That is actually a super hard problem, but actually there's like great textbooks that will tell you exactly how to do it. Right? You might have some you know, idiosyncratic challenges for your specific project, but there's incredibly strong guidance about how to approach that very complex problem. Right? And, and previous generations of computer scientists have done that. It's a major achievement. Right? So the holy grail here would be you have a textbook, which really kind of says these are kind of the main design decisions you need to make. These are the different reasonable options. And these are the trade-offs that you need to assess, you, know, you need to evaluate when you're thinking about the different options for the design decision. So, you know, I, so I think. So the tokenomics example is solidly in that category. Like you'd like sort of what are the main options and what are the trade-offs? When you're putting together a, an automated market maker, right? There's sort of Uniswap's X, Y equals K rule, you know, Curve has its own rule. Both of these protocols keep iterating, coming out with new versions. Like, is there some optimal DEX in some sense? Or is there some kind of natural way to sort of parameterize the design space so that you can talk about trade-offs between the different points? Um, so that, that'd be another example. Um, as far as impediments to the whole space, um, I mean, if you want to talk about like what really will could hold it back for, I mean, a, a lot of stuff is like technical problems that will presumably just eventually be solved, right? Like kind of, you know, making zero knowledge proofs practical enough. Maybe that's already been solved. It certainly wasn't solved 10 years ago. Maybe now it's been solved. If not now, maybe a few more years, right? We will have sort of zero knowledge proofs kind of with the kind of parameters that we need to, to really be to really be practical. So those to me, I, mean, I think there's super interesting research to be done and I'm really excited to follow it. But you know, I don't see that as like an existential threat to kind of crypto succeeding. I mean, I think that will that will happen. And there's a bunch of other technical issues that I also think will happen. So you know, one place, which again I think will happen, but I think is lagging and is really like lacking, I think, I think not enough people are thinking about it is just like we were talking about, how do you make things relatively trivial for people to participate, right? So like if someone doesn't want to kind of, you know, figure out MetaMask and, you know, 
worry about, you know, keys and worry about getting hacked and, you know, and just wants to kind of, you know, invest in, you know, some cryptocurrency or, you know, send money to a friend like, like they would over Ven like via Venmo or something, you know, making that as absolutely trivial as possible. So just sort of like, you know, user interface type stuff. And again, kind of, you know, the application layer, just having even maybe like a couple levels of abstraction to make it really simple to the end user. There, again, I think that's got to happen eventually. I wouldn't mind seeing progress on that a little faster than it is now. But, um, but uh, anyways, but the point is, like, if that doesn't happen, I do think crypto will stall, where it's really just kind of relatively dedicated people, um, you know, which is still millions of people, but it's not billions of people. I think if billions of people clearly, like, you really need to, to make it trivial to, to use. And so there, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And then the other thing, which we also touched on, which is sort of, you know, um, you know, regulatory aspects, you know, I think is sort of an unknown, um, you know, it's, you know, you can't like shut down Bitcoin, right? I mean, because anyone can sort of run the software anywhere in the world, you know, so unless you kind of really controlled everybody's computers all over the world, you wouldn't be able to shut it down. You know, but you could imagine, right? You, you could imagine, you know, a really bad case would be, you know, a country makes it illegal, you know, to send a Bitcoin transaction, right? While you're on US soil or whatever, something like this. I, I'm optimistic that won't happen, but, but if that did happen, that would obviously be problematic, right? Um, so I think it is going to matter. So I do think, you know, I, I think it's important that, um, anyways, I, I think that's a wild card. I think that's a big wild card. How much will this technology be embraced um, by, various, by various governments? And how much will innovation be really explicitly promoted and incentivized as opposed to it just kind of happening on the fringes, you know, like some open source project or something like that. So those are the two big things. Um, again, neither of which is something I can really work on directly. Um, I work on the more technical aspects, but the big, big picture, those are the things that I wonder about. So, Professor Rothko and I, we have so many more questions, but I guess uh, we'll have to let you go in like five minutes. So maybe well, two, two last quick questions. One from, from me would, would be, uh, I, from my perspective, you very much at, at, at sort of the setting the foundation for a lot of the research on crypto, solving very core problems. And there are other people coming in, you know, building on top of things, programmers. What are the people you interact with in, in, in this space? I mean, do you usually interact with other computer scientists who have PhDs, you know, professors? Uh, are, do you, are you in talks with your other colleagues who are coming from traditional pedigrees and hesitant to entry the space? Do you talk with entrepreneurs? Do you talk to frauds? What, uh, what, 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 what is like the space like uh, from your vantage point, um, just kind of on the, on the social kind of interacting with people level? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question because it's pretty messy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I was watching um, crypto from a distance for several years before I started really working a lot on it. Uh, I'd say, you know, maybe 2016, 17, 18, Maybe I wrote a paper or two, but for the most part, I was just watching it as a hobbyist. Um, and the reason was, you know, I knew it would take a tremendous amount of effort to understand things to a degree that I, I could do research at the level that I, uh, uh, you know, that could be expectations for myself for my, for my research. Um, and so I had to be convinced that the payoff would be high. Like I knew it was going to be literally years. I, I got to tell you, like right now, it basically feels like I'm taking a bachelor's degree in a program that doesn't exist yet, where I'm also kind of trying to figure out my curriculum while at the same time studying that curriculum. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, it feels to me like kind of a four-year degree I'm in the middle of doing. 
Um, and, you know, so obviously I needed to have some confidence that it would be worth it before I undertook that. And finally I did, like maybe 2019 or something, you know, I was like, you know, there's definitely enough here to keep me busy for a long time and this is going to be worth it. Um, and part of that, part of the reason why, you know, I knew it would take so much time is because there's, you know, there's, there's not some textbook you can just read, you know, there's not some sort of online course you can just take and have a strong understanding of the space. I mean, there are books, there are awesome courses that do help, you know, that will teach you some stuff, but I mean, it's just, I mean, it's very, uh, it's very, very early days. Um, so I do talk regularly to academics. I mean, I, I am, I'm, you know, I'm definitely at my core in academic for sure. What's interesting is on the, on the academia side, how many, um, right? So, so I'm not talking to that many academics from my own fields of expertise um, about this. So meaning theoretical computer science and algorithmic game theory. There are actually not very many people. There's, there's a few, but there's not very many people from those communities that are working hard on, on these issues. Um, so it's much more kind of, um, I'd say the security side, the crypto side, distributed computing, uh, those are the computer science academics. So those are the ones I'm now starting to interact with much more than I have historically. And then of course, economists also. Um, they're, again, it's, I wouldn't say it's mainstream in economics, but several very good economists, um, you know, including Alex, who you talked to. Um, the, the ones that don't feel a pressure to publish in journals, you know. It's true. So like, I, I have to tell you, I, I would not have done this if I didn't have tenure. I mean, this, this, this is maybe even like the first time where I really felt like, all right, I actually like feel the power of tenure because like risk like, on it's for your degree and then everything might just collapse or everything might be made illegal and like it winds up not being worth it but i can tolerate that risk right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lose my job if this whole crypto thing doesn't pan out um and uh right but so i also am i mean i gotta tell you i mean i definitely um i, I do pay some amount of attention to crypto twitter that's where an enormous amount of kind of discussion is I read way more blog posts than I used to, you know, way more medium posts, you know, hang on some discord servers, um, you know, t telegram, I still don't really have a lot of appetite for, but I mean, it's very, there's a lot of knowledge out there, but it's very diffuse. Um, and I, you know, and honestly, I think, of, you know, you know, I, I'm definitely like, you know, number one, I'm a researcher, but like I said, I mean, you know, I do, you know, Number two, I'm an educator, and, and I do actually feel like, in addition to hopefully doing some 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 good research, you know, I might actually be able to synthesize, you know, and bring together in one place some of this in, some of this kind of knowledge, which is currently very diffuse. And I, to be honest, I think the, the EIP fifteen fifty nine report, I, I feel like, was a bit like that. I mean, I think maybe not maybe not everything in those fifty eight pages was already known, but a lot of it was but it was not known in a way that was easy for other people to access. It was kind of scattered over lots of random sources. So I think one contribution of that report is to bring everything together in, into one place. Um, and so this fall, I'm gonna teach a class called Foundations of Blockchains, which I'm hoping um, will also you know, start playing that role a little bit. So really you know, sort of documenting the synthesis I've been able to come up with for myself, you know, and hopefully you know, sharing that with other people. Um, so they don't have to sort of you know, sift through Twitter as long as I did to kind of get the, the juicy nuggets of information. Um, so I pay attention to kind of, you know, uh, discussions in the community. Uh, I do talk to entrepreneurs. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an advisor to a venture capital firm, uh, A16Z. So through them, you know, I do interact with uh, startups from time to time. Uh, and that's been, that's been very, you know, and that's very helpful 
for, you know, because right now, I mean, it's such a blank slate is on the research side, like what research question to even ask, right? And so that's, that's a pretty helpful calibrating force, right? So ultimately, you know, I want to do good science. That's, that's the goal. But if, if you know, if, if I have a choice between doing like a, a cool math paper that's relevant and a cool math paper that's not relevant, I would prefer to do the one that's relevant. Uh, and so talking to people who are really building these things, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's really, it's just, you know, the question, I mean, it's really interesting. So it's just like, if six people in a row ask me the same question, I'm like, okay, this is probably a good research problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that's, and that's what's so cool. I mean, there's, this, like I said, there's this palpable hunger for more knowledge and for, you know, just kind of, you know, um, well-founded guidance, you know, about all of these different design problems. And so it really feels like a unique moment in time, you know, as a computer scientist and as a, as a sort of, you know, algorithmic game theorist and as a mechanism designer, um, where, you know, um, it just feels like a, a point in time where in addition to writing really cool papers, you can actually really help people, um, you know, build the, build, build the things that they want to build. So, you know, that, that confluence is rare enough. You really have to jump at the opportunity when it comes along. So that's, that's why I've sort of dropped everything and, and I'm spending almost all my time on this now. So, so Professor Rothgarten, last question. We, I know we have two minutes left. Since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for this interview? And I, I know this is also another question that's on Seon's mind. Are we going to expect a crypt, cryptocurrency textbook coming soon? Since you, you are such a prolific textbook writer, a great educator and teacher. So are we going to expect anything uh, pedagogical from me? Right. I mean, so this, this, so yes, I don't know the form. Like I said, this, this course in the fall, I'm definitely... I mean, so over the last decade, I've come up with a good workflow for producing educational materials. And so that's been, you know, that's been really, you know, because I still am a full-time researcher. So there's no way I can sort of write these books without having a really good uh, process, you know, that, that, to do it efficiently. And so, you know, basically what I do is I sort of teach, I teach, I teach a course, I teach it a few times so that I finally understand it. You know, I do very detailed lecture notes. I write the lecture notes immediately after I give the lecture so I can, do them, I can write them actually extremely quickly. Some courses, I just leave the lecture notes up for posterity and then I forget about it. Other ones, if I feel like there's enduring interest, uh, I sort of then edit those into a book. So like my 20 lectures on algorithm, the game theory book, for example, was, was written in this way. So I'm definitely hoping to generate, you know, both um, lecture notes and uh, a set of videos from this course and then maybe future iterations of that course. Whether it becomes a book, I mean, honestly, the space is moving so fast right now. It's not actually clear to me that makes a lot of sense. Um, but so right now, my, my approach is just like, let's figure out a way to generate a lot of raw material. And then as the years go by, it may become clearer what's sort of the most helpful way to sort of package that material uh, for people to consume. Um, at, the, at the moment, it really, I just kind of feel like it's a, it feels like it's a really personal learning journey. And I just want to um, allow others to sort of tag along with me if they want. That's kind of going to be the purpose of the lecture notes and the videos and this kind of stuff. Um, it's very much not, you know, someone who's figured everything out, like laying down the wisdom. It's not like a sage who sort of, you know, is going to tell everyone how everything works. It's really, it's honestly more, I'm just trying to understand everything. And the stuff that I figure out, I just want to tell people about. Like I said, first step, teach yourself. Second step, figure out how to communicate that clearly to other people. So that, my, that aspect of my sort of life and career is not going away anytime soon. So You're, you're too humble, Professor Rothgarten. Thank you so much for teaching Seah and me so much. Even though 
we haven't asked you which which coin to buy to, to become the next millionaire. I mean, we, we didn't ask for investment advice today, but <laughs> thank you so much for teaching us so much uh, for this wonderful conversation. It, it was such, such a great honor to meet you. So, Thanks so much, guys. A lot of fun. So. And, and uh, hopefully we can get together in person soon. I, I'm moving to New York uh, this weekend to start work. Uh, our friend is going to Colombia and uh, maybe, maybe we can uh, get together in Colombia soon. So it'll be All right. great Sounds to great. Sounds great, pay huh? you a visit. So okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted, but we won't uh, keep you much, much longer. Yeah, but okay. th thanks so much for joining us today. Let's All right, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.